Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. All right, welcome. It is Tuesday, March 3rd, 2020, Super Tuesday, and not just the states that are voting today. It's a Super Tuesday for us at the Muni Lowdown. All right, so we've got our super lineup of stories today. We've got, from New York, Patrick Ferguson looks at a pair of bills in both North Carolina and South Carolina state legislatures that could fundamentally change the state's electricity markets. Also from New York, Maria Monte discusses, in a market hungry for paper and yield, how 5.23 billion refinancings of the Buckeye Tobacco Settlement Financing Authority's debt is an opportunity to satisfy those cravings. And finally, from Washington, D.C., Chuck Stanley looks at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach and how they are showcase showing indications of significant declines in freight volume as the effects of the coronavirus outbreak in China add to mounting headwinds at the two San Pedro Bay facilities. Well, let's start with you, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. How's it going? All right. So you're talking about a pair of bills in North and South Carolina that, that may make a big change in their state's energy markets. So what is the legislation all about? Yeah, so these two bills, which are n- nearly identical, um, would require the states to study the implementation of regional transmission organizations, also known as RTOs. So these are grid systems that function as marketplaces, as power generators bid into the market, and the grid operator would uh, select the bidder based on the price and different specifications and distribute that power to to customers. The authors of the legislation hailed the bills as pathways uh, to the free market, but also for renewable energy as some solar and wind uh, farms are able to produce electricity more cheaply than larger power plants uh, like gas and coal, but often don't generate enough uh, to win a large contract with the utility. So we've seen this with other areas uh, around the country, the PJM. Uh, we've seen more renewables come into the space. I think there are probably about six or seven uh, RTOs across the country. It's interesting that both these states filed the legislation at the same time, uh, meaning that it's likely that these states could combine their assets and create a single RTO with the other RTOs across the country. Usually they span multiple regions or multiple states. Um, and uh, and distribute power across like a large grid. Interesting. They both did it at the same time, you're saying. Yeah, so you think maybe there's uh, some plans in the work um, to, to create a, a larger system or to get them on the same page. So let's talk about uh, competitive grid systems. Do you think they lower costs and bring more renewable into the mix? Yeah, so both these pieces of legislation um, – you know, hail the hail these uh, RTOs as way to lower cost for consumers. Uh, if you look across different RTOs across the country, it's kind of more nuanced than that. Um, prices and RTOs can be very volatile, uh, depending on what energy is coming out of the grid. And because uh, every state that participates in an RTO is going to have different regulations, uh, things get a little bit trickier of what power can come into play, also the size of the transmission lines, and also transmitting that power across state lines. Some RTOs pay coal-fired power plants, nuclear plants, and some gas plants to keep uh, capacity online. So this is, in a sense, the these plants aren't 
necessarily feeding the grid power, but yet they're getting money to stay operating. So we can look at states like Ohio, uh, where this is true. They've had a lot of, a lot of issues there. Um, there's also some issues of uh, solar, wind, and other renewable energies uh, coming onto the grid be, uh, because of reliability issues as they're not able to produce power uh, all throughout the day. And also it, um, questions of resiliency. These are all industry terms, but then resiliency of having a diversified energy base of different types of sources uh, coming into the grid. So as this, an RTO could open up more space for renewable energies, uh, solar and wind, because they can produce energy cheaper some of the time. Um, it also um, poses more problems in the sense that the grid has to have different types of energy generating all the time, just so in case um, consumers need to draw down on that. Well, it's interesting. I want to point out one thing in the article, that, which I found very interesting, that as of the end of uh, September last year, uh, North Carolina had the second most installed solar generation capacity in the country after California. Right. Yeah, there's a huge, I, a lot of market participants see a huge opening for the solar industry, especially North Carolina has made a lot of advances and they see the same uh, could happen in South Carolina and they could tap into that. Interesting. All right, I got one more question for you, Patrick. So have we seen anything like this before? Yeah. So last year in Florida, there was a ballot initiative, but the Supreme Court shot it down. The court ruled that the measure was misleading uh, because some of the language in the in the ballot would, um, quote, grant citizens the right to sell electricity. And the court shot that down saying, look, there's no constitutional right for citizens to sell electricity into the grid. But before um, the Supreme Court weighed in on the ballot measure, um, the, the initiative caused a lot of stir. Um, Utilities and power generators see legislation like this um, as an existential threat. Um, a lot of what could happen uh, is that utilities turn into more transmission uh, businesses and power generations, power generators are pitted against each other. And so we look at the Southeast, uh, Florida, Virginia, North, South, North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, a lot of these power generators have long-term contracts with utilities um, that they that they use to recoup their costs, let's say, on a, a very expensive nuclear program like, like in Georgia <laughs> or South Carolina that uh, didn't work out. And also utilities, uh, let's say Santee Cooper and some municipal utilities um, have vertical businesses where they rely on their own power generation. So this could throw off their business models as well. Um, in Virginia last year, uh, there was talk that there would be a bill called the Vir Virginia Energy Reform Act, which would do much of the same to create a competitive market. We haven't seen that bill, but it's also interesting because um, theoretically, some of this North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and all the Southeast could develop one of these RTOs that we see in, in different regions of the country. Okay. Well, very interesting. Patrick, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Okay. Let's move on over to uh, Maria. I'm well, but actually, before we get started, do you mind if I take a little smoke break? <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Let's get we'll started. We we'll got to support five. the MSA. Okay. So, Maria, let's talk about your story here. You've got. Let's. We're gonna, it's going to be basically about the Buckeye Tobacco Settlement Financing Authority. What is it all about? 
Uh, to answer that question, we have to go back a little bit. So in 1998, an agreement was reached between the attorneys general of most U.S. states and several territories settling lawsuits against tobacco companies, and that's the Master Settlement Agreement, or MSA. The tobacco companies agreed to make annual payments in, perpetu in perpetuity to the selling parties, and the payments are based on the number of cigarettes sold and shipped in the U.S., the settling parties began to securitize those payments by issuing bonds, and investors purchased the debt and debt services backed by the MSA payments. And the Buckeye Settlement, uh, excuse me, the Buckeye Tobacco Settlement Financing Authority is the authority used by the state of Ohio to securitize those MSA payments. The Buckeye Tobacco Bonds were one of the last to come to the market in the sector. They uh, originally came in 2007, and the tobacco sector is a favorite in the muni market because it provides yield. Tobacco is the highest yielding sector in munis because of the high yield and liquidity. And so the market ate this deal up. It's a noteworthy transaction. Any tobacco transaction is, and also because of its size, which is like five and a quarter billion dollars. Definitely big, huge. So, and I'm sort of, and my next question, I can sort of answer myself and basically because of rates going down, but why did they refinance? They, part of it was by reducing debt service costs. They believe that the state will start to be able to recoup some of the MSA payments at some point. However, what's incredible is that uh, this is a credit that was predicted to default in 24, 2024, so four years from now, and they'd already made draws on reserve accounts in 2015, 2016, and 2017. So this refi uh, adjusted the maturity dates and debt service schedule to uh, realign with current revenue expectations. And they got lucky with timing. The market was already historically low as far as um, interest interest rates are concerned. And it priced as we saw some contraction in the equity markets as well as uncertainty surrounding the impact from coronavirus grew. They achieved significant interest savings, which reduces their debt service expenses. What's interesting is that the fundamental underlying credit didn't change at all. And I wonder if holders of the 2007s who refied got a worse deal if they repurchased. They, it's the same credit. The security is the same. But and just like the 2007s, it's only a matter of time before a default is expected to occur. Only with the 2020s, you're probably receiving less compensation for that risk. I see. Well, timing is everything, as they say. Indeed. Okay. So, Maria, one last question for you. What backs these bonds? So, the MSA payments are based on the annual consumption of cigarettes. Each individual cigarette sold is part of this. So, anyone who purchases a tobacco bond must know and be comfortable with the fact that they may not be paid on time. The MSA is a perpetual agreement, but the number of cigarette smokers is going down, consumption is down, and it continues to trend downward. When you're purchasing a tobacco bond, you're accepting the fact that they're purchasing a declining revenue stream. And this deal uses some pretty optimistic assumptions that cigarette smoking will only decline by 3.3% a year through 2057. They did a stress test and that signal that it could decline by 5.5% this year and 4% thereafter. So there's not very much room for, uh, there's not very much margin for, margin for error. And the thing is, consumption trends are even worse than anticipated from the 2007 issuance, which is why they'd made draws on reserves in, for the 2007s in the first place. And these consumption trends are, or are likely to continue to get worse as time goes on and fewer people smoke. 
But clearly many buyers are willing to take that risk. And the assumption is you'll eventually get your money back and clip your coupon in the meantime. Very interesting. And just want to clarify one point in your story about, like you said, changing uh, where fewer people are smoking than before, that's going down, but yet you said e-cigarettes or vaping are starting to go up. Well, the distinction is the MSA does not cover anything other than sticks sold and also um, roll your own equivalents. So vaping is not part of that, even though some of the vaping companies are owned by uh, large manufacturers. Vaping liquid is not part of the MSA. Very interesting. Okay. Well, Maria, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Young. All right. Let's finish it off with Chuck Stanley in Washington, D.C. Chuck, how are you doing down there? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jim. All right. So, Chuck, uh, we're gonna, you're going to talk about the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And you said both of these ports are likely to take a hit from the current coronavirus outbreak. Can you tell us a little bit more about how things are looking in Southern California? Sure. So both ports are seeing signs of a significant slowdown in the first quarter of 2020, and a major contributor to that has been the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, As most listeners probably know, the outbreak originated in China, and the Chinese authorities imposed widespread quarantines that effectively shut down a significant portion of the country's manufacturing sector. So the effects of that missing production from Chinese factories is working its way down the supply chain and are just beginning to resonate at this major port complex in Southern California in the form of canceled vessel calls, and in the case of Los Angeles, already a major dip in freight volumes. The latest production I've, the latest projection I've heard from port officials is a 25% decline in freight volumes in February. And all of this comes at a time when both ports are still feeling the effects of the Trump administration's trade war with China. Wow, 25% is a fairly uh, significant decline. So. Is this hitting Los Angeles harder than Long Beach? Well, officials at the Port of Long Beach say that they haven't seen the types of declines that we're hearing about from Los Angeles yet. But like L.A., they're seeing canceled calls at a rate that's more than double what they would usually see during a normal year. So you would expect that to translate into a downturn there as well. It just may be slower to materialize. Uh, For some context, L.A. and Long Beach are consistently the two busiest ports in the country, and they handle more freight from China than anywhere else in the U.S. The two ports are neighbors on Southern California's San Pedro Bay, and because of their proximity, a lot of shippers use them more or less interchangeably. So if a few large vessels opt to go to one rather than the other in a given month, it can create a pretty large swing. For instance, towards the end of 2018, we saw a jump in total imports to the two facilities as U.S. businesses rushed to get goods ashore ahead of tariff increases that were set to kick in at the end of the year. But that increase was fairly uneven between the ports from one month to the next. Then on the other side, in 2019, when volumes started to decline, Long Beach was the first to see a dip in freight from the previous year. But now, towards the end of 2019, we saw Los Angeles playing catch-up. During the last three months of 2019, uh, they averaged a 19% decline from the previous year, whereas the declines in Port of Long Beach were more modest. So it may just be a case where this interruption in the supply chain is exacerbating what was already a negative trend for L.A. But officials at Long Beach tell me any downward trend for L.A. is a bad sign for them as well going forward. Right. Um, And uh, before, just a few more questions, Chuck. Just want to clarify something in the article, which uh, I found interesting. If you minus the coronavirus uh, concern right now, basically you're saying, I think, 
typically in this time time of the year, because of Chinese New Year, typically there would be a dip anyway. But and then, but because the coronavirus makes it, like you said, a, a lot more a bigger drop. Correct. Right. So it's a confluence of of multiple factors that are really affecting the ports right now. Chinese factories close down every year for about two weeks for the Chinese celebration, Chinese New Year celebration. Um, and the outbreak really started to come into full force around that time. So the factories were already closed, and then these quarantines were imposed, which caused the factories to be closed for a longer period of time. In addition to that, exports from China really haven't recovered from the trade war, despite a what they're calling a phase one trade agreement between the U.S. and China. Right. So since you're mentioning the trade war, the U.S. and China did enter a partial agreement on trade near the beginning of the year, I believe. Has it any positive effect on port operations? I asked the executive director of the Port of Long Beach about this, and he said the agreement hasn't seemed to do much for port operations yet, although it's still early. He said he had been optimistic that agricultural exports to China in particular would be quick to respond to the deal's provisions for more Chinese purchases of American goods. But so far, that hasn't been the case. And it seems that there's an open question as to how resilient these supply chains that were interrupted and adjusted to avoid the tariffs are. That goes for both agricultural goods and other exports from the U.S. to China, as well as manufacturing production that in many cases was moved out of China to Southeast Asia or other regions. All right, Chuck, one last question for you. And I think I believe this is probably the first time the Muni Lowdown has talked about the coronavirus. Obviously, the stock market had a huge uh, sell-off last week. It's impacting literally globally. So so going back to coronavirus, is there any indication of how long port operations could be affected? It's really hard to tell. The Chinese government has indicated that the spread of the virus there is falling, and some of the factories have been reopened. But people I spoke to expressed concern that with the steep fall in manufacturing, it's record lows in China in February, the Chinese government might be too aggressive in its efforts to get the factories back up and running again, which could lead to another outbreak. And then you have the coronavirus now spreading across the world, so we could be looking at an unpredictable pattern of disruptions across a number of economic sectors and regions of the world. And international trade is certainly a sector we would expect to continue to see an impact. That is correct. It's a it's impact all of us at this at this time. All right, Chuck. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. All right, and that's our show today. Uh, many thanks to uh, Chuck Stanley, Maria Monte, Patrick Ferguson. And Christian Ayala, our producer, who makes us sound good on the mics. But most of all, thanks to your listeners out there who tune in week after week to the Muni Lowdown on our latest coverage of Muni Distress Debt. Today is Super Tuesday, so if you're on a, one of the 14 states or American Samoa, go out there and do your civic duty and vote. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Muni Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.